So we come towards the end of this sermon series through Genesis. This is the second to last text that we will uh, read and, and uh, hear preached in this long and amazing story of, of Genesis. The, this week the, we ended with verse 28 of chapter 47 last week. And this is, I think, probably going to be the, the longest reading. It's from 47.29 through to 49.28. Uh, so, uh, as I said, you're obviously welcome to read along in your Bibles, but uh, uh, as, a, as a preference, listen to this as a story and uh, try and uh, remember some of the themes of what we've talked about in Genesis. As we go through this, we're going to see a repetition of a, a chunk of the history of Genesis in what happens when Jacob blesses his sons in the story. Well, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord endures forever. So here with open hearts, with joyfulness and gladness that God speaks to you today through his word uh, in his son and by the power of the Holy Spirit, God's word. And when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, if now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt. But let me lie with my fathers, carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. He answered, I will do as you have said. And he said, swear to me. And he swore to him. Then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. After this, Joseph was told, behold, your father is ill. So he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And it was told to Jacob, your son Joseph have come to you. Then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed. And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the, ha- in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make of you a company of peoples and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. And now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are. And the children that you fathered after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. As for me, when I came from Padan, to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way, when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath. And I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, Whose are these? Joseph said to his father, They are my sons whom God has given me here. And he said, Bring them to me, please, that I may bless him. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age, so that he could not see. So Joseph brought them near him, and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face. And behold, God has let me see your offspring also. Then Joseph removed them from his knees, and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand, toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand, towards Israel's right hand, and brought them near. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd, All my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys. And in them let my name be carried on, and the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac. And let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. When Joseph saw his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. And he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, Not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people, and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, By you, Israel will pronounce blessings, saying, God make you as Ephraim and Manasseh. Then he put Ephraim before Manasseh. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. 
Moreover, I have given to you rather than to your brothers one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together, that I may tell you what shall happen to you in the days to come. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to your father. Listen to Israel, your father. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the firstfruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. Unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence, because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Simeon and Levi are brothers, weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul not come into their counsel. O my glory, be joined not to their company. For in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness, who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Binding his foal to the, uh, to the vine, and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine, and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine, and his teeth whiter than milk. Zebulun shall dwell at the shore of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships, and his border shall be at Sidon. Issachar is a strong donkey, crouching between the sheepfolds. He saw that a resting place was good, and that the land was pleasant. So he bowed his shoulder to bear, and became a servant at forced labor. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels so that his rider falls backwards. I wait for your salvation, O Lord. Raiders shall raid Gad, but he shall raid at their heels. Ash's food shall be rich, and he shall yield royal delicacies. Naphtali is a doe, let loose that bears beautiful fawns. Joseph is a fruitful bow, a fruitful bow by a string. His branches run over the wall. The archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him, and harassed him severely. Yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. By the God of your father who will help you, by the Almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that crouches beneath, blessings of the breasts and of the womb. The blessings of your father are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents, up to the bounties of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who is set apart from his brothers. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf, in the morning devouring the prey, and at evening dividing the spoil. All these are the twelve tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with the blessing suitable to him. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we ask you this morning hour that you would give us help, that you by your Spirit would open our, the eyes of our hearts to see the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ in this text. We pray that as we contemplate the, uh, what the Old Testament, especially in the book of Genesis here, narrates about the fathers and their, and their faith, we pray that our faith would also be stirred, that we would be built up and encouraged by this, this word. We pray that you would be glorified as we come to love the truth of the gospel more deeply and to praise you as our one true and living God. We ask this uh, for Jesus' sake, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, I once came across uh, an obituary of a pretty famous man, and I expected the content of that obituary to be about his great accomplishments. This was a seriously successful businessman who had made billions of dollars. I thought tales of his great exploits and so on would be the focus of the obituary. But instead, what the obituary detailed was this father's love for his family. And that was interesting because of all the 
accomplishments that people would expect to see from a worldly perspective documented about this man, it was his love for his family that was displayed most, uh, most profoundly in his obituary. Something similar happens with the patriarch, uh, Jacob, who comes to be known as, as God renames him as, as Israel. Uh, if you've read Hebrews 11, which is commonly called the Hall of Faith, discussing the acts of faith of the fathers, you might think, given that all that Jacob has been through, that we, we might find a different story in, in Hebrews 11. We might think of him wrestling the angel and prevailing, wrestling God and prevailing. But no, what is highlighted by the writer to the book of the Hebrews? That by faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. So of all the things of Jacob's life to talk about in faith, this is the act that is documented as his great act of faith. Well, when we come near now to the time that Israel, uh, interchangeably called Joseph, uh, Jacob here in, in the text, but Israel, it's time for him to die. So he calls in Joseph and says, uh, I'm about to die, but we aren't where we're supposed to be. We are in Egypt. We've been promised the promised land. So he says to him, don't let me be buried here. Let me be buried with my fathers. And this is quite an act of faith. Why? Because if you simply die and cease to exist when you die, what does it matter where you are buried? The only reason it would matter where you're buried is because you expect to have new life after death in that place. So right up front in this text, we see the aspect of, of Israel's faith that he knows that there is life to come and that God's promise for a new land, a promised land, will come to place. So he says, don't let me be buried here where I don't belong in Egypt. Let me be buried where I'm supposed to, with my fathers. And so he asks uh, uh, Joseph to swear this to him in the, uh, in the oath uh, ceremony. It says uh, that he um, places his hand under his thigh, which is a uh, way in which a promise is sealed. A pact is made. And so he calls this dealing kindly and truly with me. Dealing in the faithfulness and the, and the honesty with what you have promised me that I may be in the land where my fathers are. And next, he then says, okay, uh, Joseph finds out that his dad is now really ill. So he brings his two sons. He's had, Joseph has had two sons while he's been here in, in the land of Egypt. And what's interesting is Jacob, or Israel, says that he's going to bless them like two of his own sons. He's going to adopt Jake, uh, jo uh, Joseph's sons for the purposes of this blessing. See, he says, uh, they shall be called by the name of their brothers in the inheritance. And he says, they are, they are like, the, they are mine, they shall be mine, as Reuben and Simeon are. Meaning, just as these two boys of mine are mine, these two boys of yours will be mine, and I will bless them. But this is not just an addition this is actually a substitution in a sense, because as we see shortly in, in, cha in chapter 49, Reuben and Simeon don't get blessing really, they actually get curse. And substituted out of this uh, line of his children are going to be Reuben and Simeon, and Ephraim and Manasseh through, through Joseph are going to be adopted and receive blessing from Israel. Uh, these two are going to receive a kind of place of honor in substitution for uh, the sons, Reuben and Simeon, that are being kicked out. But when they are brought to him, he does something surprising. We have a, firstly, a repeat scene of where, what does this remind you of? The, the father who is dying is, is, uh, is blind in his old age. Well, this is exactly what happened when Jacob and his mother deceived Isaac. And now 
he's now here in his old age and is unable to see. And the two boys are presented to him. And the order gets flipped again. And he crosses his hands. And he blesses the younger with the greater blessing. Now this is certainly interesting. Uh, Faith recognizes that God's ways are not man's ways. Jacob has had a long and hard life learning what faith is like in the midst of God's providence, experiencing things that he didn't understand, things that in his view weren't supposed to happen. But he's now realized that despite Joseph thinking God is supposed to act in a particular way, Jacob is saying, no, I know that's what you think. I know. But this is God's will. And he blesses the younger over the older. Now that is a pattern that has been followed in Genesis, is it not? Isaac over Ishmael, Jacob over Esau, Joseph over Reuben. And so we would expect that Joseph might recognize this, but no, not yet. And finally now, Ephraim over Manasseh. Now some of you have lived long lives of faith. And you've come to learn exactly what Jacob is able to say here because of your experience. That through trials, you have seen God's delivering hand and you've realized, well, actually, probably most of the situations I've ended up is not how I thought it would be. But God has had his hand in all of it. Others of you are young in in faith. And so you should pay attention to this. Because this is the pattern of life in this world. Things don't necessarily end up the way that we think they should. God's wisdom is greater than ours. And some of you, if you're not a believer, may wonder what kind of, what kind of thing has to happen to a person to make them like this. Well, it is that no matter what happens to someone, if they belong to the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, the promise is that God will preserve you and that he will build your faith and he will cause you to endure and he will bless you and he will give you eternal life. So that you can, you can see things not working out as you expect them to in life and know that ultimately God is going to work all things out for your good and he is going to deliver you into the new creation. Faith has always been the same. Trust in God's promises. And we see it in, in not just seed form, but very strong form here. The object of that faith is going to be clarified as redemptive history, as God's plan in salvation is made clearer as we progress um, through the scriptures. You'll see that the unf- unfolding of that. But th- th- these fathers truly believed in the promise of God which is that he would send a Messiah and that they would receive an inheritance in a new land. That will come very clearly into focus in the next chapter. So, in this blessing on on Jacob, we see an interest of Jacob to Joseph in verse 15 and 16. We see an interesting threefold way that God is invoked to bring this blessing to Ephraim and Manasseh. So what does Jacob say? He says, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked. That means, the generations who walked by faith before me believed in the same God as I do. And that God, I call upon his name. Then he says, The God who has been my shepherd all my, all my life long to this day. That means, God has been with him from the beginning. This is the mature expression of faith. Even just a a chapter ago, he said to Pharaoh, uh, uh, short and terrible have been the days of my life. And now he looks back and he says, actually, God has been my shepherd all my life to this day. And then thirdly, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil. Now, that's also an amazing image because... Those of you who were here for the, the sermon series we did through the book of Ruth, the, 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 the title Goel, meaning Redeemer, 
is the, the person who delivers somebody out of some kind of bondage and restores them into their, their uh, independence, freedom, and connection to their family. Well, he here has attributed to God this title of Redeemer. That, that of all the evil that has befallen him, God has redeemed him from it. Terrible things. God has redeemed him from it. So the God who walked with my fathers, the God who has walked with me, and the God who has redeemed me, that God, bless the boys, and in them let my name be carried on, and the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. Conveying to them, what's the substance of this promise? It's the promise God made to Abraham, that there would be an abundance of people, in the, that the people would be numbered like the stars in the earth. They would grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. As we said, Joseph didn't really like this, that the younger was getting the, the greater blessing. Uh, but his father patiently now instructs him in the way of faith. No, my son, I know. He shall also become a people, the elder. He shall also be great, but the younger will be greater than he, and his offspring will become a multitude of nations. And so he blessed them by pronouncing that blessing. God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. Now that is what will be said in, in the future. And that, that's why it says, thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. So Israel then, Jacob, says to Joseph, behold, I am about to die. And now he reminds him that this same faith that he has, that, that he wants to be buried in the land of promise, Joseph must now have this faith. Behold, I am about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. These are the words coming from the man who is about to die to the man uh, who is his long lost son that he has been reunited to. And then he says, Moreover, I've given to you rather than to your brothers a mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites, that he is blessed and will have security. See, Jacob is completely convinced now. His faith has come to a full maturity in God. And he's able to instruct Joseph knowing what comes ahead. And it's quite extraordinary that this reflects the pattern we've seen right across the Genesis that God chooses, seems to often prefer the weak, uh, the young, the feeble, the unexpected through whom to work and bring his blessing to all. And now I, I Israel, J Jacob, has eventually come to see that these are all refractions, uh, changed subtleties of God's grace. It works for a great surprise. The, the not-so-attractive wife, the youngest children, the hated brother. It is among these uh, people that God has been pleased to bring blessing to his people. But it moves from this scene to Jacob calling all of his sons. He's had this separate scene with his adopted sons, Joseph's sons. And now we move to this long series of blessings. And it's for all the 12 tribes. Well, for all the 12 sons out of whom the 12 tribes will come. And so Jacob calls his sons and says, Gather yourselves that I may tell you what shall happen to you in days to come. Now, Hebrew for that is the latter days, meaning the, the future. I'm going to tell you what is going to happen to each of you boys and those in your family, the lineage that comes after you. This is an important phrase, this, the days to come, the latter days. Because what this means is this is not just... This is not just a family member gathering his other family members on his deathbed to give them an inheritance. But this is a prophecy of the future of what God is going to do in his, in his chosen people. Now, Jay, when he's saying these things, when he's conveying these blessings, 
He knows that what he's saying is true because he says, I'm going to tell you what is going to happen in these latter days. But as we will, as we will see later, the way that we find out exactly what the meaning of these things are is even greater than what Jacob could have imagined when he was blessing his sons. What he said to them will happen did happen, and what he said is true, but it is, there's more to it than even he realized as he's giving his, essentially, a last will and testament. He is also prophesying about the future. So it begins, and he says, Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. And he begins with Reuben. And he says that this is his firstborn, his, his strength. Now, he is the firstborn, and he's preeminent in dignity and power. But... He is not going to get preeminence. Why? Because he defiled his father's bed. It's adultery with Jacob's concubine, Bilhah, if you remember from chapter 35. As firstborn, in theory, Reuben would have been entitled to a preeminence, meaning not just in how people respect him, but a double portion in inheritance compared to the other brothers. And leadership of the family, right? But he is going to lose all of that because of what he did. And next, Simeon and Levi. As he moves on to sons two and three, they get grouped together. Why? Although they, one was obviously born after the other, they get grouped together, yeah, because of their particular heinous crime. Uh, what is that? They are weapons of violence. Um, and and uh, are they swords? So he says, I don't want to come into their council. I don't want my name, my glory associated with their company. Because why? They are, they are terrible people. For in anger they killed men. Uh, th- th- this is a, a reference to that terrible story where in, th- as they thought it was, avenging the name of their sister who'd been abused, um, they ended up slaughtering an entire company of men who weren't involved with what happened. So much so, the slaughter of the people of Shechem was so extraordinary because God distinguishes very, very clearly between His judgment of people's sin and other people taking vengeance into their own hands. Why? Because oh, God is the avenger. He is the one who determines who must pay for their sins. A person cannot just take vengeance into their hands and slaughter the innocent, those who haven't committed that crime. So ultimately here, because of their crimes, they also will be displaced. And so you may say now, having seen these three sons get curse instead of blessing, how can it say that he's gathered them all to, to bless them. Well, as we're going to talk about shortly, he is in blessing. It means conferring upon them what they deserve, really. It's not automatically a positive thing here. But now we have a strong shift after these first three brothers who have all been uh, disinherited in a way. They get a kind of, of curse. They will be divided and scattered and lose preeminence. In contrast, son number four, Judah, will be blessed beyond imagination. That would come as a surprise to us if you only read the earlier parts of Genesis because he was the one who came up with the idea to sell Joseph into slavery. They're like, well, if, if his father's going to think he's dead, we may as well profit from the enterprise as well. How is this guy going to get the praise of his brothers. How is that possible? Well, that is, is possible because there is an extraordinary change that happens in Judah. He went from the one who betrayed and wanted to sell his brother into slavery and came up with that whole idea to saying eventually to Joseph before he knew that Joseph was Joseph, just thought he was this unknown ruler in Egypt, he said, rather than my father lose another son, take me 
in his stead, and I will face the consequences. Let, let the curse of what has gone wrong be upon me, so that my father uh, may be blessed. And Joseph knew that that was an indication of a complete change of heart, that God had done something and, and, and completely changed his brother. But not only did Joseph knew that, know that, God knew that. And so when he puts it in uh, Jacob's heart to bless his sons, Jacob is seeing Judah as God sees Judah, a renewed man who is fit for the role that is going to come ahead for him and those who follow after him. Instead, now, he becomes a, a righteous man. You know, he also went to go and find a prostitute who turned out to be his daughter-in-law. So it's not just one isolated occasion. There's a bunch. But God can completely reform and change the sinful human heart and make it a, a heart that has faith and that gets God's righteousness counted to it uh, through trust in his promises. And that's what happens to Judah. So what comes to Judah now as this faithful and righteous man? Well, your brothers shall praise you. Oh, this is fascinating. Because the word for the verb here for praise, when it's used uh, for praise, it's always used with God as the object, the direct object of that verb. Meaning, whenever in the Bible, in the Hebrew Bible, the phrase praise, this phrase for praise is used, God is the one being praised. So somehow... The praise that belongs to God is going to come through Judah's line, which is interesting. And next he says, your hand shall be on the neck of your, of your enemies. Now that's a, a very strong military uh, imagery. Not just a single person's hand-to-hand -hand combat, but that his, what follows from him in his progeny and family line, they will be military conquerors. They will be powerful that they will be able to pin down the strongest enemies. And next he says, your father's sons shall bow down before you. Meaning, he gets the preeminence. Isn't that extraordinary? Judah and his family gets the preeminence. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. And next... He is called, he's referred to as a lion's cub. We have this lion imagery, a lion's cub, and then as a lion, and then as a, as a lioness. Once a, a lion has his prey, if you've watched, uh, I suppose, David Attenborough video or something like that, or our planet or something, you will, you will see how the eating lion jealously guards what it's captured. You don't approach the other lion's if they're not in the right pecking order, don't approach until the others had their fill. Same here. Until he has conquered his enemies, no one dares approach. Or as a lioness, who dares rouse him? You've seen uh, maybe a baby lion wake his mom up at the wrong time and, and she snaps at, it, at, the, at the, even their own cub. Well, the imagery here is, is one of... of Dominion and power being top of the food chain. That's what Judah's offspring are going to be like among the nations. And then it says next, The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. Well, the scepter is a clear royal imagery for, for rulership. That it will not leave him when? Until tribute comes to him. Next it says that the ruler's staff from between his feet. Another a powerful image for uh, control and dominion. But also uh, a bit of an innuendo to say that they, this the progeny will be multiple from him. That the promise of a multitude of people uh, being filled in the earth, that will come through Judah as well. But what is, what is the purpose of his reign? 
Well, it says that until tribute comes to him and the obedience of the peoples. There's something about Judah and the line that will come from him that is meant to bring the tribute of the nations and their obedience. His rulership has an objective that people would submit to what God is doing through this line. That they would bring tribute, praises, one might say. Your brothers shall praise you. That praises would come from the nations, obedience of the peoples. That he is going to bring order from chaos in the world. At the same time, he will bind his foal to the vine, his donkey's colt to the choice vine. Uh, this is an imagery of, uh, it's an interesting one, but the, the idea being, if I tie my donkey to my food, <laughs> or to what's going to make my wine, the donkey is going to eat it. Right? The donkey's not just going to stand there. It's going, so why would you tie your donkey to your food source or your wine source? You'd rather tie it to a tree or a pole somewhere. This is an amazing image of plentitude. Meaning, there is so much vineyard, so much fruit, that you can just tie your animals to them. They can eat away, and that's not going to change the abundance. That's the extraordinary multitude of what's available. And we get that confirmed because it says he has washed his garments in wine. That's like saying he used gold bars as a doorstop. He, he's so, so, there's so much wealth, there's so much excessive abundance that you can, I mean, obviously you all know that that clothing is going to change color <laughs> but the, the, if you wash it in wine. But the idea being, you know, if you were to do a laundry full of, um, of, of wine, of, of clothes with wine, you know, imagine paying uh, with the fanciest of wines, a Chateau Hauptbriand from 1964, paying 500,000 rand to launder your clothes. That's the kind of abundance. We don't even have to think about it. And his vesture in the blood of grapes, that's a synonym for the same thing. His clothes in, in, in wine. And his eyes are darker than wine. He's consumed so much wine that it's almost full to the brim and, and coming out of his, his, his eyes. And his teeth whiter than milk, shining with the health of abundant food and so on. This is what is going to happen to, to Judah. Somehow, in the midst of his reign, there's going to be extraordinary abundance. The idea of this rulership, as you can see, is that it is going to be passed down from generation to generation until something happens. Right? There's an until, a marker of time, that there will be this scepter. It says it will not depart from Judah. That doesn't mean Judah the man. That's Judah, his family and lineage, until tribute comes to him. And then when it does... When some particular figure arrives, then this abundance will take place. Now this royal prosperity that the, a king who attracts the nations and brings abundance is experienced in part in various times in redemptive history, right? We, this happens when David comes, doesn't it? King David. That they, they seem to just crush all their enemies under their feet. Their, their, the hands of Judah is upon the neck of their enemies. It happens with Solomon. His kingdom, the kingdom is expanded greatly. And it, think of the riches that were flowing in the land at the time. Greater than any man who ever lived. But even so, these kind of escalating events in history were not the end point. They were all pointing forward to someone. Something needed to happen. And the New Testament ultimately tells us that the Old Testament would be looking forward to a king who would take up Judah's scepter and fulfill all of these promises in one man. And clearly we learn 
through the Gospels and the later writings and, and the writings of the, the preacher to the Hebrews, that that person is the Messiah. They don't have this information yet, but they are looking forward to him. And when this Messiah comes, the Hebrews talks about his exaltation on the throne, his righteous reign, and a universal reign of righteousness that brings tribute from the nations and peace and abundance. When the Messiah comes, there's going to be this new creation, this splendor and excess. In fact, as the prophets go and speak through the Old Testament, what we see is continual images of superabundance. How's that for a phrase? Superabundance. Abundance beyond what we can imagine. Well, interestingly, that because he's fourth in line, he appears in the middle of these blessings. But the blessings continue for others who have not been removed from the line, like the first three. You have Zebulun, who's going to have a wealthy, uh, probably trade, shipping trade kind of enterprise. Um, Issachar, who finds peace, even though he's going to uh, be a, a servant at forced uh, labor. Dan, uh, in, in judging his people as one of the tribes of Israel, says that he will be a serpent in the way. One that, although he is raided, oh, sorry, although, um, although he's... Yeah, he will interrupt those coming to uh, disrupt him. He would uh, provide justice, essentially. Uh, so Dan, that his name actually means judge. So he's, he's supposed to prize, uh, choose uh, justice. Oddly, his tribe will choose treachery. And in the time of the judges, the first idolaters will actually end up coming from the tribe of Dan. Then uh, we have uh, uh, the Gad, and although he will be attacked, uh, he will also be an attacker. So there's a, a really funny word play here in Hebrew. So you can say it something like uh, Gad will be attacked by an attacking of attackers, is, is what it says here. There's going to be conflict, right? That's what the word play is saying. There's going to be conflict. Uh, Asher would be fertile and productive. They actually end up settling in the northern coastly region of Canaan. Naphtali, uh, this image of a doe. There would be people who freely roam in the mountains and so on. And they, will seal, they, they settle in, in, uh, very near to Galilee. But then what follows after these briefer ones is the blessing that Jacob gives to Joseph. And this is an extravagant uh, blessing that comes to him. All of the fruitfulness, the ability to remain unmoved and unharmed by attackers makes him clearly a sheep of the shepherd. Uh, the one who's the mighty one of Jacob. He's saying, my God is going to protect you and he will help you and he will bless you with the blessings of heaven. Blessings of the deep that crouches beneath. Blessings of uh, fertility uh, through, through those in your family. The blessings of your father are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents. Extraordinary what, uh, what comes to him. And they says, may these blessings be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who was set apart from his brothers. Indeed, he is the jewel of, of his, his eye, the this, this son Joseph. That he is going to be blessed with rain for crops, uh, streams for, for, um, for uh, farming and productivity, that he will have lots of offspring. And why? The greater blessings materially among his brothers, because he is the favored, uh, higher one among his brothers. And finally, Benjamin. Oh, Benjamin is a... This is a tribe that's going to be pretty fiery, uh, pretty violent. They're going to be ravenous, devouring, uh, devouring their prey and, uh, and at evening dividing the spoil, an attacking, hunting uh, tribe. And we will see that in the book of Judges, that the, the Benjaminites 
were, were cruel and capricious. So this is interesting because it ends with a summary statement, verse 28, after this long discourse. All these are the twelve tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with the blessing suitable to him. So each has received his due. That's an interesting observation. Now what are we to make of that? Well, a fundamental principle that we've seen operating right through the book of Genesis is that the action of, of God's people is going to have consequences. And in another way, as God will describe it in multiple times about himself in the Old Testament, that it will have effects for their offspring as well. That he visits the iniquity on, of the fathers on the generations that follow. That there are consequences for actions. We've seen that multiple times. That their inheritance will be proportional to their character. To their faith. So what, what is seen amidst these 12 different individuals and tribes is a mix of uh, blessing, uh, judgment, uh, curses, promises, uh, and all dependent on what they have done. Jacob now has essentially come as judge to render to each person what is their due. And God gave them this prophecy so that the, those who would be faithful in the coming generations would actually be able to be sustained during the wilderness wandering. God knew what was coming ahead for these people. The, the, because the, the future, the promised land for them is not in Egypt. Instead, it's going to be in where God had promised it that they could enjoy this extraordinary, extravagant level of prosperity that he had promised for them at some time in the future. And now, he has divided these people according to each what is due. And this teaches us a principle that's not just seen in Genesis, but is really important because it's at the heart of the gospel. That the lines would receive what is due to them based on what they had done. And without that, we would actually have no hope for salvation. And let me explain to you why. If people didn't get what was their due, there would be no hope for us because none of us deserve righteousness and life. But God had promised that through Judah, there would be a Messiah who would come and be the king reigning in righteousness and who would earn the favor and blessing of God. And so it's actually this Messiah who's prophesied, who gets his due, and through faith we receive that. We receive the blessing that he earned, the superabundance of the new creation. And we can see that because Hebrews 11 says, in talking about all the fathers, these all died in faith, not having received the promise, the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. That's Jacob. He greeted these promises from afar. And so he could say, I don't know when I'm going to be raised from the dead, but I want to be buried in this promised land. I want to participate in the blessing that is coming to this promised land. So he saw, he acknowledged that he was a stranger and an exile in Egypt. But more than that, that he was a stranger and an exile on earth. He didn't know yet exactly what that promise looked like, but he believed what God had promised so far. And so the writer to the Hebrews continues, For people who speak in this way make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, meaning Canaan, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desired a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them 
a city. And as we open the New Testament, why do you think the gospel of Mark kicks, kicks off really early with the wedding at Cana? Why did the people believe when they see God's, Christ's miracle when he converts the water into wine? Well, it's because of texts like this. That wine is so abundant, it's like water. Messiah is here. But as that imagery said of the Messiah who would come through Judah, that wine, as we read in the call to worship this morning, Psalm 75, is also a foaming cup of wrath that he will come to rule with justice among the nations. This Messiah came uh, as one who would also ultimately dispense justice. And so the wine becomes a two-sided image, both of wrath that will be poured out on the nations for for the wicked and abundant, eternal, immeasurable blessing for the righteous. And who are those? The ones who have faith in the seed that will come from Judah, the Messiah, who we know is the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is ruling until the nations come and yield praise to the offspring of Judah, until they yield to his rulership and render obedience to his kingship that will extend right to every part of creation. And then the superabundance will come, not now, not in a Mercedes GL55 AMG, The abundance will come to God's people in the new creation. So much so that Amos 15 says you'll be able to ring out the hills and the wine will be flooding. That's the superabundance of the new creation. That is the object, like Jacob, of your faith. Whose ruler and king, through the line of Judah, who is the lion of the tribe of Judah, who you can approach without fear of him snapping. Uh, He is your king. And this is the nature of saving faith. Trust in his promises. Belief in him, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then you, like Jacob, will know that you will be found in that promised land when he returns. Father, we thank you for this great...